This is the Well-Connected Twin Cities podcast, bringing you conversations about holistic health and wellness with local voices, so you can get to know the incredible experts we have access to right here in the Twin Cities. Have you heard about our new on-demand classes? You can learn from local experts in a variety of holistic wellness topics, from homeopathy to breathwork, yoga to cooking, and we've added several classes to provide support during pregnancy and postpartum. There's a ton of exciting topics to peruse, and you can find it all on our website. Each class is only $30, and you'll have lifetime access to the recordings and printable materials. You'll also be connected with these local practitioners and know who to go to if you want to explore these topics a little bit further. Check it all out on our our website, wellconnectedtwincities.com. Welcome back to the Well Connected Twin Cities podcast. I'm your host, Lily Zabarowski, and Dr. Rachel Allen joins me in this episode to talk about her new book, The Pleasure is All Yours. As a psychologist who's focused on somatics and the mind-body connection, she spent a lot of her career helping people process trauma and pain, and then began to focus more on pleasure, becoming a self-described pleasure expert. In this conversation, we talk about her background and what drew her into creating this work. She also explains more about what's covered in the book and gives us some simple ways to build our mind-body connection on our own. Well, I am here with Dr. Rachel Allen, and I'm so excited to reconnect with you because we actually did an event together prior to COVID and the pandemic and the shutdown and everything. So that was like almost two years ago now, but it's so fun to be able to reconnect with you and talk about a subject that you are very passionate about, and that is pleasure. I know pleasure. People, you know, as soon as you hear the word, I think it conjures up all sorts of things for people. But primarily it conjures up more sexual or erotic things, but, um, and that's just fine. That's wonderful. And there's a lot more to it, but, um, well, yeah, I do. We did a panel, we did a panel discussion. It was January right before pandemic. Yes. It was right before COVID hit the U S and gosh, it just feels like another lifetime ago. Let's jump into why you got into this work in the first place, because I think everyone has such a unique story of what draws them into what they're passionate about. So would you share with us how you became a holistic psychologist, how you got so passionate about this concept of exploring pleasure and integrating more pleasure into our lives? Yes. Yeah. Happy to answer that. And I I think it makes sense to ask people with maybe more unusual professions or uh, specializations. I always joke that if I was an accountant, maybe people wouldn't ask me that, but, but that's, it's, you know, valid to ask why people are interested in in numbers also. Um, But for me, you know, I almost working backwards. If I think about how I really integrate mind body connection. So somatic psychology is what we call it in the field, but So integrating the body as a resource for healing. And then I really um, work at the intersection of that and relationship issues and sexual health. So those can be part and parcel, you know, separate things, but also there's so much overlap. Mm -hmm. And so kind of working backwards from that, I really think it boils down to the fact that a lot of my father's influence was to really, um, he encouraged me to be an athlete, which came more naturally to me, at least more 
endurance sports. And so I think I really always felt from a young age um, how activity and athletics and being outdoors, and I guess back then we called it being a tomboy. <laughs> um, but that was just, I've always known my whole life, the role of embodiment and body expression, whether it be with athletics or in other ways and camping and being in nature. And um, so kind of the power of my body as a source of, of healing and self-regulation, I think that was something he encouraged and came naturally to me. And then my mom, she really was um, definitely a more of a diehard feminist and very much also open about just talking about the reproductive body, the human body in non-shaming ways. As psychologists, we call that a sex positive household. And she had a party for both me and my sister when we got our periods and gave us all the books of what's happening to my body. So for me, I grew up with that being sort of normal, that it, it wasn't this weird thing. I mean, I knew names of the anatomical body, and but then I noticed that my friends did not or other people, that was not a conversation topic. They were not having period parties. Um, so I think that led me to want to really help others not feel shame or confusion or guilt or repression in their bodies in the way that I felt more fortunate that I didn't. Not that I've escaped that in all ways as a American, you know, a woman in the Western world. But um, so that's that's sort of like kind of my two selves that I integrate because they're so complementary to, yeah, to become a holistic psychologist. And then the yoga stuff came in and I mean, all sorts of stuff from there. Yeah. So you studied psychology and then you studied yoga, became yoga teacher as well, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. I still do some, but um, a little bit less right now, but yeah, okay. retreats and stuff and individual. And stuff. what did you see around bringing those two worlds together and connecting mind, body, connecting yoga with mental health practices? Can you tell us more about what came up for you when you were kind of in the early stages of that? Right. I think that for me, the way I operate in the world and what guides me in my dharma, my path, is that I'll have this very felt sense or intuitive pull. And then it's almost like later I have the language <laughs> to understand it. So I felt this pull to do my yoga teacher training after doing yoga. Um, and then that the, the yoga teaching experience gave me the language to understand why I had felt and had noticed in clients a far deeper transform transformation from when they engaged the body and the mind. And then with reading and learning about um, neuroscience and the role of trauma in the body, there's so much research coming out about that. That also really then confirmed what, again, I experienced and what I've seen clients experience. So I, I went into these areas and then I found that it's, it's this burgeoning field. And I think that that is, um, that's what's so exciting. But, but at first I didn't have a language around, I didn't have the terminology to explain like why we need to bring in the body or why going on a walk helps, or, you know, I don't think any of us did or how, why, why do we feel better after a committed uh, yoga asana practice? And so I think there are some things that are very mysterious and precious, and there may just always be these felt sense experiences. But then I think that's part of also me being a writer is wanting to try to describe it, not only feel it physically, somatically, emotionally, but also be able to you know, put some language to it because language is powerful as well. Yeah. Did you practice psychology without the body aspect and then add? kind of both in the somatic work? Yes. 
Yes. I, I wish I had gone to a somatic grad school. I did my PhD in San Francisco, um, but it was more of a traditional program. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also remember they wanted everybody to pick their, your track within psychology of, are you cognitive behavioral? Are you uh, psychodynamic, which is more of the Freudian style? Are you, and I, I just never wanted to commit maybe because none of them really seemed stick to me. So I always said I was in, you know, I was integrating or I was eclectic and there was a little backlash around that, which I didn't really care, (laughs) but I just noted it and decided to continue to just wanting to learn from all different types. Um, And that's just how I think about things. Even the book is really this very, just uh, looking at systemically and holistically and, and historically and culturally initially in order to understand how we got to where we are today, both individually and collectively. So but yeah, my, my graduate program was definitely, it was really great with diversity, multicultural issues. I mean, I had amazing clinical experiences in the San Francisco Bay Area. That was, that was invaluable. But, but as far as, there just wasn't a lot of the mind-body stuff or things like, I love Buddhist psychology as well. And that wasn't really part of it. So I've integrated those into my work a lot since. Nice. So as you integrated the body aspect, you came up with or found this idea of bodyfulness. Can you tell us about what that is? Because I think a lot of people are familiar with mindfulness, Mm -hmm. Um, but what is bodyfulness? And can you explain kind of how do people access it? How does it work? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, I think people are aware of mindfulness usually most everybody is now and, and bodyfulness really builds on that. So it's not anti-mindfulness. It just really says that, you know, there's a time and a place for those moments of mindfulness. And then there's a lot of aspects of our life in which we need more. Um, It's maybe not enough um, to, to help us feel better or to regulate or to cope with the relationship issue or so bodyfulness really is, it starts with embodied mindfulness. So paying attention to what's happening within your mind, body, your emotional body, And then this is where it departs from mindfulness. It's sort of like, and now what, what do we do with that? Okay. So we're observing ourselves or we're noticing our thoughts, trying to be free from judgment and then what? And so the the second part of bodyfulness is really providing people tools, hands-on direct embodied tools, tools that are very somatic. It brings in a lot of the stuff that we're learning about somatic psychology bringing in the body. So everything from different ways to discharge out the stress of what you notice or to kind of listen to your gut as far as even regulating with food, containment strategies. So those are ways to just first feel like grounded and centered. Mm -hmm. And what's beautiful with this second part is that it's, it all exists within us. We don't need a prescription. We don't need a lot of money for some gadget, but it's all these different ways of like moving, breathing, sighing, being outdoors, sometimes engaging others, whether it be with massage, acupuncture, but really looking at subtle body energy and emotional energy and movement and the nervous system. So that's, I think, a really empowering second step. And then the, and then really the, the next part of bodyfulness is really then with this increased body connection and body confidence, mind-body confidence, how can we really reclaim our right to thrive more than just survive? And this is where I bring in a lot of pleasure reclamation um, and how we can really bring in our right to receive pleasures of all kinds, individually and with other people in this sort of repressed culture that we've we've had and how pleasure is healing and really reparative um, and helps with resilience. Um, Because a lot of trauma, 
trauma psychology and somatic psychology talks about wanting to feel more pleasure and joy, but it also can be just so focused on helping people establish safety and just sort of um, get out of their heads. Sure. So bodyfulness is really kind of bringing in that kind of that joy and, and um, expression, not repression, engaging your body in ways that are true to you and can bring more intimacy with others. Yeah. The long-winded answer. I need to find a, like a 30 second answer to what is bodyfulness. No, that's what this podcast is for. <laughs> it gives us room to explain and explore a little deeper mm-hmm. than we can in you know, like an Instagram live or real or something. Yeah. Yes. So thank you. I think it's good to get, get into the details on it. So you talked a little bit about how this can particularly be helpful for people that have stored trauma in the body or maybe feeling disconnected or unsafe in their body. Can you talk a little bit more about what might get people there and how, when you work with clients one-on-one, how do you kind of ease in? Cause I imagine it's probably not a like, okay, here, like, like a quick fix of here, let's, you know, connect more. What are some ways that you can help kind of ease people in or just help people reconnect with their body? What's kind of that first step or that beginning? Yes. Well, and I'll start off with saying that everybody has trauma in their body, whether they realize it or not. And it may also be ancestral intergenerational trauma, not to be depressing and a downer, but, but, and because people, part of my work is helping people figure out how to really release that. So it's not lodged in us and then have ways to self-regulate everyday stress as well as trauma. Um, so I just say that because I think sometimes people feel like, well, I, I wasn't uh, a Vietnam vet or I I've never been assaulted or so they don't think that it might be for them. Um, and so, but just living in the modern world is, can be enough, especially if you like live long enough to have some trauma mm-hmm. that is in our body, either in nervous system reactivity and, or different ways that we have blocked energy, or we have our fascia connective tissues hanging on to things. Um, so, but in answer to your question of what does that look like? And this is, I think the craft I'm continuing to keep leaning into and growing into because what I found is that in the typical 50 minute session that insurance will allow you to have, um, it it's, there's so much I want to do that. And there's only so much time. And so I've always been trying to juggle, like, how do we build and how can we, you know, with those three layers of bodyfulness, given everybody has different backgrounds, different relationships to their body. So, you know, I, I, everybody comes to me for different reasons, but when we're, when you're going to bring in the body, you have to go slow. So in the beginning, it really starts a lot more traditionally as far as talk therapy. Although I always start with a a guided meditation in the beginning, but then depending on their intake paperwork, if they, whether they have a connection to their intuition and body or not, that can inform where we might go with things. But I do, I do a lot of things, everything from walking and talking. I have a walking and talking session after this. I also, in my my office, I've had an aerial silk, I've had yoga props, I've done different guided meditations. So a lot of it, after we've been working together for a while, we'll start to integrate some of that in the session, but maybe not every week, maybe some weeks it's some embodiment and some talking. That's usually often what it is. 
-hmm. For some people, there's, um, I just give them also some suggestions outside of the therapy session. I'll send them some handouts or worksheets or some places, suggestions to go and do things. And then the, like my retreats are really immersive. I think in that real transformation that can come from psychotherapy and embodiment, but you know, we don't all have the time or inclination or income to do a week long retreat. So it really can look so different person to person, but we, we uh, check in each session to see sort of what we need from the toolbox between talking, moving, breathing, meditation, inside, outside, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you have a short practice someone could do to just quickly experience what you're talking about with bodyfulness? If someone's sitting, let's say, let's paint the picture. Someone's sitting at a desk, listening to this podcast, trying to also work at the same time. Yeah. 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 Well, I would start with, okay. I think the breath is the best way to guide us into the body. So I would, I would guide them in breath though. And, um, not just say, Oh, start breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll pretty much stay stuck in their head. So something like alternate nostril breathing, I might guide them in because that sort of tricks your busy, busy body mind into noticing alternating your fingers on your nose, which side are you inhaling, which side are you exhaling. So alternate nostril breathing, maybe to start to bring yourself into a rhythmic breath. And then from there, I would probably say, scan your body, notice where you can soften, where has your body maybe been gripping and and clinging to protect you, even though right now it doesn't need to, because you're at home in your study. Mm -hmm. And so then I would say, can you say it's the jaw, open and shut the jaw, massage the jaw, your own hands and own self massage are actually really healthy for resetting. I would also maybe say, take out, let out some, some just size. So auditory release, we all like to kind of be quiet. I know I don't even always like to ohm in a yoga class, but auditory release is really helpful as well. It really helps release from the upper chest. Um, and then, you know, maybe even just some, depending on what their go-to area of tension is, you know, I might guide them in some shoulder rolls, um, maybe even like a ragdoll pose, shaking. And again, the, the more primal and sort of savage looking it gets, the more people are uncomfortable, but that's actually what we need to do often is just shake or to just let out big, long sighs or moans. We, as human beings, we, we wouldn't have those as options to do with our body and our sound if they weren't healing and exist for a reason. So that's where I would start. Sort of go to breath and scan the body, then notice where you can bring in some self-massage or some stretching and or some stretching, even standing up, um, some shaking, sound release, maybe I already said that. Foam rolling, <laughs> that can be a good one. Um, so that, that could be like a three, three minutes right there that yeah. really can reset your nervous system. Yeah, thank you. These are all great tips. I think it helps to give people examples. Mm-hmm. Like- Bringing in the senses, uh, uh, having essential oils, mm-hmm. that can, music, That's there's that whole sort of, those rituals that bring in the senses that are also really soothing. Mm, Nice. Well, let's switch gears a bit and talk about your new book. Will you tell us in your own words, why is this book so needed? Why did you put so much effort into creating this work of art? I'll tell you, Lily, I did put a lot of effort (laughs) into it. I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's a book like that's a condensed, get all the info out there. You know, it takes a yeah. lot. So 
tell us more about why it's so important and then what you cover in the book. Oh, well, I think it's important because we systemically, we, we have some sick systems in our culture and the trickles has trickled down to us as individuals and in our communities. And so as a holistic thinker and psychologist, I wanted to kind of start from the beginning. Like, how did we get here? Because I don't want to give anybody any sort of suggestions on how to heal without really getting to the core and the root of, of not only our lived experience, but the culture we live in, the society we live in, and the history. And so it's really a book looking at, um, the there's three sections. The first is looking at, so how did Americans, it's more focusing on, on Americans, how did we get sick as far as being so fatigued, being so reliant on pharmaceuticals, um, feeling lonelier than ever, um, having you know more anxiety and depression than ever, people feeling overworking and the increased rates of burnout. Um, so what what's happening here and also how is this impacting our relationships mm -hmm. and because we're so wired for connection and and our, our relational selves is really a big part of like our oxygen um, and so i was just realizing well wait a minute so why is the united states one of the most repressed countries in the world i thought that we were somehow would be so much more advanced but um so just looking at our repressive roots how we for all different reasons, have been taught to not connect to our body, not connect to our emotions, certainly not to express our bodies and express our emotions. There's, you know, some certain ways that are allowed and okay, but, um, and also to sort of keep ourselves buttoned up, um, you know, maybe feel good, but not too good. And only in certain times or certain prescribed ways. And so, and then of course, the ways in which ourselves as just sexual human beings has been demonized and stigmatized. So even though every single person has a body and every person is a sexual being of some kind and came from one, everybody has a story of shame and confusion and uh, misunderstanding or guilt around these two aspects. And this is because of our repressive roots. So the first section of the book is just saying like, this is, this is what has happened historically. This is also maybe how we were raised and socialized in certain ways that told us to not really be bodyful and to own our right to pleasures. And then what's happening in more modern culture and screens and that sort of thing, not to make people bummed out, but just to say, look, this is how we can notice it and say, nope, I'm going to rebel against it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're so used to it. It's like the water we're swimming in, right? Like the culture. And so being able to recognize it is that first step of being able to say, oh, that's happening. Let me shut that down or say no to that. I imagine you cover like patriarchal society, capitalism as part oh, yeah. of this. Yes. And religion yeah. and racism and sort of, um, this, and I think this difficulty around, you know, dealing with ambiguity, dealing with things that are like really powerful, like the power of the erotic, the power of sexual energy and erotic energy as life force energies, um, factors, you know, such as the industrial revolution and capitalism that said basically wants us to be machines to this day, yeah. wants us to be machines that just work all the time and look at how we're malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. um, so any of the book overall is it's. I, for me, it was really important to, to not have it be so cerebral. I have a lot of different vignettes, little anecdotes from my life, my client's life, my friends, and 
um, lives, you know, mixed in with, with some suggestions and some research to back it. So I, I try to keep it light just because that's part of life balance too, is like, how are things kind of messed up? And yet, how can we also not forget that there is bliss and joy and mystery and some things are really pretty hilarious too. Yeah. And <laughs> the sickness, you know, like comedians, their comedy comes out of, of pain. Um, I mean, there's room for it all, right? It's not like something's terrible. And so you just have to wallow in the terribleness. You can yes, recognize yes. and be sad about things that aren't great. And you can also still laugh about things and still find joy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So, so the first I think- part is around where we've been. How did we get here? What's the second yeah. part about? And then it's, that's where I really lead into, um, you know, how can we have more pleasure in our lives and why is pleasure healing? How did something that's so life-giving and regenerative get so demonized and, or reduced to just being about sex and, and then, well, gosh, okay. If we, if pleasure is so healing, how can we have more of it in a, within a repressed body? Well, bodyfulness. So bodyfulness as this um, path to pleasure and different types of pleasure, just to remind people that. It also means there's sensual pleasures connected to just food and nature and each of the senses in those moments of ease when we slow down, playful pleasure, creativity, non-outcome oriented activities, you know, different types of play, more liveliness states of pleasure or flow states where whether it be at work or out adventuring when we're really zoned in because there's something that takes our focus because we're enjoying it so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also erotic and sexual pleasures. Altruistic pleasure is also one that I don't touch upon as much because part of the book is really for people who, a lot of people who tend to be so giving that maybe they don't give to themselves or feel guilty when they do. So, so yeah, how can we have more of these different types of pleasure, especially given nobody disputes our right to being happy, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, sh- it's our right, we should be happy and have joy. You know, pleasure is sort of like the... The, the, the dirty one. And yet it's actually moments of pleasure that lead to longer lasting states of joy and happiness. So you can't really have that without pleasure. So again, it's sort of this hierarchical bottom-up approach. Like everybody wants the book just about like the three life hacks to be happy. But if you don't connect to your body, if you don't connect to your emotions, if you don't really have that mind-body connection, if you don't actually own your right to be human in kind of all of all of the pleasurable forms, then you're not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about just the roots of where we went, where we led astray and, and what we can do to reclaim it. Well, it's funny when you said everyone wants the book to be like three life hacks or like three quick fixes or <laughs> five ways to do this. That's such a capitalist approach, right? Of like, what is the simple quick fix? What do I need to do? I'm going to go do it versus changing your mindset, changing the way you approach life. That's a little bit more nuanced, right? And it's going to be different for different people. Yeah. Like this is not the four hour work week version. Good. Right. There's, I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to knock on these other authors that have helped people, but that's, I'm not, and part of what I noticed is I would have different, you know, either like pleasure parties or workshops or things a lot of times where I would talk with women about like, what did they want in their relationship and their sensual sexual self and people would want these things, but, you know, maybe want to have still a strong libido for their partner or 
um, to feel better about their sexual selves and erotic selves. And then what we would, what I'd realize is they, they didn't really even connect to their body. They didn't like their body, know their body, know what felt good in their body or that it was their right to feel good in their body or to ask for it. So for me, I would be doing a disservice as a psychologist. If I just, if I did do the book that just said, Hey, these are the four types of pleasure, go Mm -hmm. after it without saying no, if it was that easy, we would have all figured it out by now. So no, this isn't that book for if you want the, the quick fix, but if you want like to, to put some attention into it and have a lasting transformation, I mean, it takes some work, but <laughs> this, this is more, um, that's more my aim. Yeah. It reminds me of some other podcast interviews we've done around intuitive eating and rejecting mm-hmm. diet culture and following pleasure in food, but also connecting more with your body and what you're truly craving in different moments. So yes, I've seen, I saw that you had some great healers on around that topic. I mean, I can, I can say not just from my own lived experience, but a lot of other people that, you know, bodyfulness is embodied mindfulness and somatic self-regulation strategies. I, it's completely transformed my relationship with my body and food. And I know for a lot of other people, not just females, mm-hmm. um, because what we're finding is that when it comes to things like eating disorders and addiction to substances, that a lot of it can be rooted in problems of self-regulation in the body. Not exclusively, there's also issues that relate to you know attachment and caregiving issues, but that ultimately something does break down with this sort of mind-body connection around like that set point or stopping, or like, what do I really need right now? That either then reaches for the food, the vodka or the, breathing and the moving and the crying and the whatever release you need to do. Yeah. Uh, So I'm not anti-vodka anybody, but I'm just saying. (laughs) So do you cover that part a little bit in the book as well? Yeah. I mean, I I definitely talk about how we have to have a balanced relationship with pleasure because if we're just seeking pleasure as a way to numb and avoid and, you know, aggressively not be in our bodies, that obviously isn't pleasurable or do us any favors at all. And that's what, I mean, part of what bodyfulness is, is this way to actually handle pain. It's, it's really uh, the more that we feel we can trust ourselves to ride the wave of our pain and of our discomfort, then we aren't escaping as uh, escaping and then creating a whole new layer of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, that's part of why I think I was able to come to being kind of calling myself a pleasure expert is because of so many years of just working with people's pain and trying to understand what causes us more pain. How do we get in our way even more, but it is, everything's a balancing act. It's all sort of, it is nuanced to, yeah. to, to figure out. And I know myself, I have weeks where I'm out of balance of course, as well with it all. So what are some common ways or things that hold people back from prioritizing pleasure, whether it's like actively feeling pain or being kind of stuck in that, or if it's just kind of like stuck in the automatic go, go, go busy lifestyle and aren't putting effort into, um, experiencing pleasure in different ways in their life. Yes, that's, that's key. That's, um, well, I think that everything from, I mean, the first thing, like when we were talking about capitalism and just that we have this hustle culture that really also valorizes overworking and achieving and the, the doing and the outcome. 
Mm-hmm. And we see that not only professionally, the outcome, but just when we think of our sex lives, how it gets so focused on the outcome of orgasm. And then we sort of lose all this other stuff along the way. So that it, it's so sad that it, it can take courage to just say, no, I am going to, I'm going to use all my vacation or I'm going to not, not stay and do overtime because I need to have time for a walk in my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those messages, there's also, I think, barriers that have to do with more the patriarchy and specifically kind of white su- supremacist patriarchy, is, which is really sort of gaslit women in particular to judge themselves, to judge others, compete with other women, to feel like their value is all in their outer form. And so, gosh, that really keeps them busy when they're, you know, doing all the <laughs> worrying about dieting and coloring their hair and getting Botox. And so there's, there's all these ways in which we get caught in, in just the busyness of like not enoughness or I'm too much and, and not just for women. And and then also within females, of course, just depending on race, class, religion, there's other aspects to that too, that can make it even more of a challenge, but, Mm -hmm. um, but that focus on kind of the external rather than from the inside out, I think is really, um, and just that, that women, women may be more naturally nurturers on some levels, but then they're socialized to be nurturers. And that's a wonderful thing. We need nurturers from, from everybody, men, women, non-binary, but there seems to be also this lingering message that then like to give to yourself, you're, you know, you're being selfish, which is really sad. <laughs> Don't know where that came from. So those are the first things that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And just, you know, having, I think having kids and, you know, it's, that can just be hard to focus on ourselves because we have these other beings we're caring for, as you know. I will say as mom, I have a five and a seven-year-old and I have experienced the joy of play with them. Mm -hmm. That has been an interesting new way to just experience a different kind of pleasure, right? Like being able to play and explore and do things with them that, is not focused on an outcome, right? Like we're not doing something to get something done. It's just enjoying being together and exploring things. So I do think like having kids, I totally agree with you. It can be a barrier where you're, you know, so busy and you're wrapped up in all the things you need to do and, you know, keeping things clean and keeping, you know, everyone fed and all of that. But just being able to also let them be kind of a reminder for you and a guide of Uh, mm -hmm. in a moment and just like stopping for five minutes and laughing about something silly with them. Here it is. Um, Kids and animals are good teachers for us in sort of playfulness, intuition, Mm -hmm. letting out down the filter uh, movement. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that you do that. Yeah. So who did you write this book for? Who do you feel like needs this the most? Or who did you really think of when you were writing this book and pulling all this together? For anybody who is really um, does feel disconnected, feels blah, languishing, Mm -hmm. like there should be more. So that as well as for people who even just are in a more kind of acute critical place of pain. And so it, I actually wanted it to be written for all genders. I do see how it might be more appealing to people socialized as female, given just our, the context. 
of cultural conditioning around women and our bodies and pleasure. But I, I think I'm a big believer in, well, we want sort of all, all genders as allies and to understand and as parents and for people who are dads raising kids, both boys and girls. Um, so it's, yeah, it's for anybody who really has felt just disconnected from their body or stuck wanting to feel, you know, having more, more vitality, wanting to also just learn how to, how to really trust themselves more within and not feel out of control or over-reliant maybe on things outside of them to help them to feel better. Um, so that's a pretty large audience. <laughs> yeah. And it's also confrontational topics or controversial and controversial topics. So there's a lot of people who don't want to face some of this stuff. And here I am shining a light on it. And so to them, I would love for them to read it all the more, but those are probably the people that might not, but who knows? That's yeah. my hope. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, people gravitate to different voices when it comes to learning about things. And if what you're writing is not for someone, there's probably a different person talking about this topic that might approach it in a way that is right for them. So on that note, do you have other peers in your field or people that you look to in terms of exploring this topic more books that you find are also helpful in exploring this topic that you want to mention? I just, I think it's nice to give people lots of resources and ideas, um, and recognize that, you know, there's a lot out there. And while we're highlighting your work in this podcast, there's more to explore also. So anything that you have been inspired by or you're um, interested in too? Yes. I have a lot of ideas for that. And I still want to, I had just thought of something else to to answer the question you just asked as far as who the book's for. I was thinking of how I would also love this to be for whether it be book clubs or women's circles or men's circles or, or, I, what I think is really important is that a lot of what I talk about in the book are things that have been taboo and not talked about. Mm -hmm. And I've seen how there's so much power and joy and liberation and just fun and connection when people have uh, come together to talk about this. There's a sense of, oh, I'm not the only one or, oh, that you grew up with those messages too, or, oh, you felt guilty or shame about this too. Mm -hmm. And, oh, this is, there are ways you've let yourself have, have fun by playing with your kids or whatever it may be. So that's also part of my dream is it's wonderful if people are reading or listening to it on their own and that's their journey. But I think if we could just have more natural everyday conversations around these topics that are so inherently human, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, our humanness, then I think that that creates a whole nother healing. And there's a, there's a whole nother type of benefit of pleasure when we engage in pleasurable activities as a group, whether it be like an outdoor concert, a circle, um, a spin class for that matter, is that research shows that those pleasurable events shared together lead to less of a sense of separateness Mm -hmm. and more compassion for others and altruism. So Mm -hmm. there, that's wanted to add add that. That's part of my pleasure to the people aspect. but, but yeah, that being said, what you asked as far as others, I mean, my book is completely, it's an integration of so many other healers. It's, and sure. that's, you know, I also talk about Ayurvedic medicine and chakras. So talk about really ancient wisdom. I'm just really bringing it together, synthesizing it and applying it. So I feel 
like I'm always learning. There's, I mean, there's endless number of people to keep learning from and reading from. I, I mean, I would say in the psychology world, relationship psychology world is Esther Perel. I think at this point she's fairly well known, but maybe that's just in my little bubble. So she's talks a lot about desire and relationships. Emily Nagoski in the psychology world, um, who's wrote, um, she, oh uh, wait. Uh, As you are. Yeah, come as you are. I was going to say she comes first. That's a different one, which is also a good book. And along the lines of somatic work, I do. I like Bessel van der Kolk and The Body Keeps a Score. I also sort of want to note that it comes a little bit more from a masculine perspective. And I like um, Kimberly Ann Johnson bringing in also the sort of gendered component that we need to recognize around somatic stuff and sexual health. I mentioned in the book, the, we all know about the love, five love languages, or most people do, but most people don't know about the erotic languages, which a woman named Jaya, a somatic sexual healer, she has a website where you can go and take your erotic blueprint quiz. I think that that's, who doesn't love a quiz? I actually have developed a pleasure quiz as well on my website, but you know, who doesn't love those little short quizzes where you can, you know, get a little bit of info. And then in the yoga, kind of yoga therapy world, Sean Korn has been and remains a good, huge guru of mine. And she connected me to my um, developmental editor, Linda Sparrow, who also is a yoga teacher. So, um, but Sean Halakuri and Suzanne Sterling have off the mat into the world, which really integrates embodiment and yoga, but with social justice. So that I think really helped to bring out that part of me that is about looking more at the systemic problems. Mm-hmm. So off the met into the world is amazing. Gosh, I feel like there's, there's, there's so many others here that <laughs> um, Peter Levine with, with somatic experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and there's just, there's some wonderful practitioners in the twin cities. Like I know you had Joe Molinari on your podcast. I think it was February. Unfortunately, he has moved away from Minnesota. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but still, yeah. great. I think he does virtual. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, I kind of, for me, I have a lot of influences in like in the, the yoga therapy world, in the relationship and sex therapy world, mm-hmm. and in the somatic somatics world. But yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with any last little nuggets or, um, words of wisdom that you want to share with them before we end our podcast? Well, I think I would just add that as somebody who is not a good reader myself, despite writing a book, maybe just start with, if you go to my website, there is a pleasure quiz that takes five minutes that could pique your interest and, or message me about just having something one-on-one or, or going to a retreat because my whole thing is that I love doing psychotherapy, but that can be one-on-one or just with a couple. And I really want to get this message spread as far and wide as I can, especially given our problems with healthcare equity. So I wouldn't want people to think that, oh, I can't psychology and psychotherapy isn't for me. Um, But yeah, I think that that's Dr. Rachel Allen is where I mainly have all my links to everything I'm up to right now. Pleasure to the people. (laughs) I do. Oh, and I have, I have shirts. I have shirts that say pleasure to the people on them. If you feel like having a fun little t-shirt. They're very cute. I love the kind of sixties font vibe that you have there. There's yeah, with the holidays coming up, hey, maybe a maybe a book and their shirts. 
that would be a cute gift. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you so much for being on the show and we will link your website in the show notes too. So it's easy for people to connect with you and best of luck with the book launch and all of that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh. <laughs>